Just a quick note to say that if this episode ever sounds a bit technically dodgy, for example, like it's perhaps been recorded remotely during lockdown, well, it has been. On with the show. Hello and welcome to Comics Books. I'm Lucy Dancer and for many years I've worked as a producer alongside a number of excellent comedians. I'm also a book obsessive who's always asking friends and strangers alike what they're reading. So, I thought I'd bring my two passions together and find out what do funny people read. Today's guest is a stand-up comedian known for his anarchic, unbridled and unfiltered stand-up. You may also have seen him on the BBC Comedy Awards and BBC4 Extra. There's no comedian quite like Russell Hicks, and if you haven't seen him live, it's time to change that as soon as comedy clubs reopen. Hello, Russell. Hello, Lucy. Thank you for having me. Thank you for, I can't say coming, thank you for appearing on the microphone. <laughs> yes. Well, it's nice to be asked uh, on such a, you know, a highbrow podcast for a change. I mean, God, you should see some of the <laughs> some, some of the low-rent programs I've had to be a part of. Let's talk. Let's talk books. What have you been? Uh, have you been reading a lot during lockdown? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I read so. I I I I fear that I'm a, I'm at risk of sounding like I'm bragging or arrogant at many points. Probably I will in this podcast, but I read loads. I read like almost a. Str- I am actually waiting. And this is genuine to see when are the libraries going to open. I don't. I don't understand. Oh. The, the, this I think we've learned a lot about this country in the fact that Primark was on the like yes we're lining it but like I can't get a book when are the libraries coming back because uh, I'm racking up you know I'm racking up a bill here I mean oh, I've got I've got I've got a pretty heavy habit Lucy <laughs> you know and uh, and I'm trying not to I'm trying to skirt Amazon when I can because I want the author to get the maximum amount of royalties they can. But uh, I often, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll read a lot. I'll get like a stack of of books. I usually go to the library when you know back in happier times, and I'll I'll get a mix of things. And I like to. I should just get one book and read it, but I'll get the 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 next seven books I want to read. Stack them up, and then just kind of like you know get through that over the over the next month or something. But yeah, I'm re- I'm reading a lot. I'm reading Beckett's three books. There's the, he did this trilogy and. It's a bit of a slog, really. I'm trying to get through it. It's it's weird the stuff that you like absolutely grabs you, and then the stuff that you're supposed to like. Mm-hmm. You know what? I mean? And and you kind of have to just go. Yeah, I guess that's just uh, you know, the way it is. Like, so anyway, reading a lot. We talked a lot about this uh, in our first episode. I spoke to Laura Lex and talked about how Marion Keys had said, you know, there's nothing I'm ashamed of not reading. I read because I want to read and I read for pleasure. I'm paraphrasing again. <laughs> I want to learn this quote because I really like it. But basically, do you read things because you feel like you should have read them or you think you'll get something out of them other than enjoyment and entertainment? I've been thinking about this recently because I found this old book that I had, this compendium of like essential novels. And I was looking through it and I was thinking, yeah, yeah, I've read that, I've read that. And then I remember when I was younger, I was like, okay, I have to read all these classics. But I'll, I'll never forget, I read a line by Charles Bukowski who said, there's nothing worse than a young man with a belly full of classics. Be- because it's just like, and I, and I also remember something he said, which is he said, we live, in, we live in the atomic age and your writing has to sizzle. It's got to pop. It's got to make you want to turn the page. And so I sort of look at a lot of stuff like 
I can appreciate it, but let's be honest, man. Like this is the age of the iPhone. This is the age I grew up in the, with the internet. It it's got to snap. It's got to move me along. I feel the same when I watch a film. But I sometimes think that maybe I'm missing out on stuff because I'm not a huge fan of the classics because I don't think they have an incredible concentration span. And then I wonder, am I missing out, you know, on these beautiful stories because the way that they were written and the descriptive stuff is just too much for me to sit through? Honestly, it depends on what you read, I think, of the classics. Because if you dig into the classics, there are, take uh, Don Quixote, for example, Mm -hmm. like, Actually, I've never read it, but but I read a graphic novel version of it. That's a good little trick, by the way. You can the co- graphic novels do this great. There's a, there's a lot of series of graphic novels that will take the classics and put them in the form of a comic book, which is uh-huh. which is pretty cool, actually. But from what I have read of Don Quixote, like it, it's enjoyable, and sometimes like you'll be surprised that the classics, the good, the, the stuff that is in line with your taste how ahead of its time it is and how entertaining it is still. And then some of it is just like, it wouldn't be your thing if it was written today. Yeah. The more slow, like, but I mean, that Russian literature, like, I remember I read Dostoevsky uh, Mm -hmm. when I was like 23. I read Brothers Karamazove and could not put it down. Like, just found it absolutely fascinating. And that's... Punishment, it didn't... I think because it was also very foreign to me, you know, even though I, obviously I was reading an English translation, the names and the places and the, so much of it is, is very much of that new world thing that you want from a book, doesn't it? That maybe we don't get with, well, I don't get with like English classics, for example. Yeah, some of that stuff. See, a lot of the English classics are like poking fun at society of that time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm sure that's funny but even to this day that kind of thing doesn't really and uh i love the british but you guys love to well i mean, you guys i don't know but there's a thing of like oh this section of our population this section i get it yeah great it's it's a bit self-flagellating really to just be like look how weird we are and and I just, it's just, that's never really like um, appealed to me. So that's, the, that's like, that's probably why I've never read Chaucer's because like, I don't know, I get it. It's, it's about, mm. you know, the people. And that's a thing that takes a while to, as you become a more experienced reader, mm-hmm. I've noticed that I have more courage to look, to, to look a classic down and go, no, I don't think you're good. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just because it's a classic, but because as a as a reader i feel like i'm more experienced to know now what i enjoy it's like when you look at a painting you can break it down all day long but the first time you looked at it did it punch you in the gut because that's what art is art is the transmission of that person's passion to you and if it hits you that's what it is and then you can be like god why did that do that to me but um, so when, and the way I translate that to fiction is like classic or not, like, did it, did it, did it, uh, sweep you up? Were you into it? Did you, you know, like when I was a kid, I remember being taught Lord of the Flies and I just, I just took it home and read it. I just loved it. I loved Lord of the Flies. I was going to say, when did you first start as a kid realizing that books could do that for you? That it wasn't just something that someone said, oh, you should. You should read a book. It's good for your brain. I was really bored in school. I, I was always bored in certain teachers. And if you bored me, 
I could be funnier than the teacher and I I could get the class to pay attention to me. So you were dead in the water and I was merciless. So (laughs) I would just ruin a teacher's day. And but if you if I remember these moments where they'd be like, okay, we're going to read this today. And I I just shut up. I was a different person. Like the first book I remember we read was I was a kid and we were reading this book. I only just remembered this book recently. It's called Maniac McGee. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't get it, by the way. I tried to get it and it appears to be out of print. See, there you go. That's that's me, man. Like, that's what I'm saying. It's got to be this. Yeah. I don't even know if it's good. It's just all I remember is it just captivated me because it's about this kid who comes in from some other city. He has no he's a very mystical origin. Nobody knows who he is. He can perform these like fantastic feats. You know, so he's so obviously that probably played on my deep sense of wanting to be this on stage. Oh, look at me. I'm so special. Mm. Like, I just was enthralled by it. And I wanted to I would read it on my own. I would just become totally locked into it. And I couldn't get enough of it. And, you know, when we're reading it, like nothing's going on around me. I'm just I'm just so into it. I didn't I was a little kid. So I didn't think about like, oh, I like reading. Mm. Uh, that was just, that's just my earliest memory of really, really getting deep into it. Yeah. And you said before then you were into comics, like Calvin and Hobbes. Yes. Calvin and Hobbes is like the, one of the greatest examples of how, how you can be commercial and, and highbrow at the same time. Anyone making mainstream art in America should take note because you don't have to be so stupid. It was so great because because it was just so well nobody has a lower view of the american public than the people who make things for mass consumption in america calvin and hobbes was i was a little kid and you love it on so many different levels i remember i would just get these books i loved them cuz it's a little kid who's blonde like me he's got a little tiger that comes to life that's cool already i'm in but then i remember the dialogue was really high level like there were big words and the whole deal was he was a really precocious kid so he would say these incredibly intelligent things and that was the joke and i remember walking up to my dad regularly and go dad what's what's a philistine what's a what's a what does this mean and you know it was like uh that's that was just that's just amazing to me that 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 and that was a sunday comic strip that was in the sunday strip with with other comics that were just like oh billy falls down or whatever marmaduke couldn't I didn't get know about Calvin Hobbes actually, and I had a little Google before I spoke to you, and um, I thought it was really interesting because Bill Watterson, who created them, had I think a very similar viewpoint to you about the crossover between art and you know commercialism. That he fought them because he wouldn't let them make any merchandise, and that he named everyone after philosophers in it, and it was all based on animals and philosophy, and it seemed kind of yeah, it seemed like there, it was supposed to have that second level that. And Bill Watterson is incredible in the sense that he denied them the licensing rights to merchandise like crazy. I mean, if you think about the amount, there was this little documentary about it. He's also a recluse. He's never done an interview. No one's ever spoken to him. I mean, that's so awesome. (laughs) And like, but the idea that he just said no, uh, because he could have made millions, billions on this, uh, merchandise and he said no 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 it's not about that that's that's commercial you know this is about the 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 work and there's a comedian in um in this country who operates the same way named daniel kitson yes and i am nobody has ever said this but through my nerddom 
He named one of his shows after a Calvin and Hobbes book, like early on. Which one? Uh, and and uh, I forget what the name of the show is, but it's like it's something. It's either a Calvin Hobbes book or a line. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the way Daniel Kitson operates, and then you make the connection that he's a Calvin and Hobbes fan, I think the Bill Watterson thing had a huge impact on how he operates because he's the same way. Yeah, I, I think, think it's interesting in Daniel, and it's weird because. He, he does the same thing I think as Bill Watson did where he said it's about the art and if you have to make it about anything else then you're maybe undermining the work a bit and I don't think that most of us are brave enough to do that I think if any of us made some I don't know I can't speak for you obviously but if I made something and I was offered that it could be a film or they'd make merchandise I don't know what I would do I like the idea of, of art standing by itself but I also like the idea of not having to worry about money yeah, I mean, it, you know what? It's not even money like it's it is, but at the same time, I I've flirted with that for the last maybe 5 or 6 years and I'm I'm starting to come out of it because it's really just a lot more effort and I'm too lazy to be like, oh no, this this doesn't go here and I I don't let that get exposed because when you think about it also, when you make something, you know, if you th- if you show it to a million people, that's how you're going to get those 100,000 who like it. I don't know. There's things that have come to my attention that had they not been put on a mass marketed scale, I would have never seen it. So mm-hmm. I kind of think it's a it's a push and pull. Like when it comes to dis- distribution and stuff like that, yeah, I think you should get it out there. I don't know. I mean, God, I've, I've made, I've sacrificed my principles at much smaller levels <laughs> than Bill Watterson. So I think the idea... Of, of me not doing merchandise. If you offered to make a Russell Hicks plush doll right now, <laughs> I just think that'd be too funny to say no. I would absolutely. I'd put it on my own bed. Well, we can't all be Kitson and Watson, you know. They're there. We're ourselves. Oh, it's it's just it's, it's exhausting. It's like that scene in Big Lebowski when they're like, "We are nihilist, Mister Lebowski." He's like, "Oh, it sounds exhausting." That's <laughs> that's what I think. Yeah. <laughs> We, that's why we we're impressed by these people, though. You know, from from afar. Yeah, power to them. You talked about punk music. Then is that where like hell comes in? Yes, definitely. So I was almost hesitant to include. I've almost. I'll be honest with you. For some reason, I'm embarrassed that that book had such an impact on me, and it's weird. I know that goes counter to everything I've said so far because I do believe like my girlfriend watches what she calls trash sometimes mm-hmm. on TV, sometimes, and she will justify it to me by saying, look, I know it's trash. And I, I've always been of the belief that I don't need to tell someone it's trash. If I like it, it's good in some way. For some reason, this book, I just felt like uh, up until recently, I'd always just thought it's, I don't know, it's, it, I, it was a very, it was written by a very specific punk rock band who were like a 90s punk band named screeching weasel mm-hmm. and they were like you know you've got your green days and then go a rung down that's where screeching Weasel. so super subgenre of like pop punk but they were great and he wrote this book and um i guess it's because i read it at a time where there was a slack period between like 18 and 23 i suddenly wasn't reading and i think i became pretty my brain was pretty lazy and that's when I read this book. And uh but it but it 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 took hold of me because it's just about his experience in this band and he's broke and they're just 
traveling the country, it's it's basically my on the road. Yeah. I just I just was in love with the lifestyle. And but nothing about it is glamorous. It's like he's always broke. He's always it's kind of like I go to Bukowski again. There was this book by this guy. Uh, I'm gonna butcher this name because I've never heard anyone say it. Nut Hampson. It's called Hunger. Oh yes, I've not read. Yeah, it. I don't know which one you're talking about. Yeah, and I read Hunger recently, and I'm like, yeah, this is the same. I because I love Bukowski as well, and I'm like, yeah, this is the same kind of thing for me. You're reading about this guy who's basically struggling and destitute, but in some weird way free mm-hmm. because he's got no obligation he's he's as much as he's struggling and having tribulations he's it's still more exciting mm-hmm. than if everything was just going well and he had a pension and that really appealed to me and that was a huge influence on me when i in in like almost every decision as a stand up where i i was living in san diego and i went i'm just going to leave and go to los angeles and no, i got rid of the job got rid of everything and just was like, even though there were these moments where I was like, I am scraping pennies together to get noodles and eggs so I can eat today. I also was absolutely elated. I felt so free because I had jumped off the grid. I knew wherever I was going was going to be a lot more. This was way more exciting than just, you know, working in an office and being like, oh, everything's okay. This is all safe. You know what I mean? That's really interesting because I want, I didn't know you were going to go that way with it. I thought you were going to say that you could read about it, but then you were living vicariously, but you actually almost followed in the footsteps. Of way I- too much. I When I was younger, I would read something about a guy. I remember I would listen to music. I remember I was on my way to work. I've probably had like 50 jobs in my life, right? And Because I've just quit and leave. And I was on the way to like Pizza Hut. And I remember I was listening to this punk rock song that was like, quit your job. And I went, yeah. And I just didn't go. (laughs) I was like, you're right. And I just like turned and didn't go to work that day and was like, I quit. (laughs) How did that work out for you? Yeah, I was like broke by the next day. (laughs) Okay, so you're very impacted by art. I feel like we've established that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And when you read fiction, good fiction, I think you're you feel like you're like this is you dude like or or girl whoever what the author is you're like this is you (laughs) right like i can feel this like i read the bell jar recently and you're like yeah this is there's an example of i guess you could call it a classic i mean it is after that atomic age in the 60s but that is funny now the bell jar that is great that could have came out yesterday yeah yeah like that's like with bukowski's books like you know, he would like tell the story of his life through this very thin veil of a fictional character. Okay, so I've never read any Bukowski, so tell me anything I need to know. It's he's like Ernest Hemingway if he drank more. <laughs> okay. Bukowski is great because he is so fantastic, and I would argue one of the greatest writers in the last hundred years, easily. And yet you don't see him mentioned very much in the literary textbooks. You will not study him in school, but ask anyone. Like there was a documentary made about him and Sean Penn's reading him, all these people. I mean, he, that's another thing that makes him so exciting to people like me is that he writes about being a loser and he is a loser and he is an outcast, you know, as opposed to like, you're like, yeah, well you, you know, you eventually got like, 
embraced by the community. No, it's like he's still on the outside. Mm. Um, he basically would just write like his first book is called Post Office. And I, that is an example of a book I read exactly at the time of my life when I was where he was writing that book. It was another level of experience. It was just like so cathartic because he was the only author I've ever read who absolutely hated work as much as I did. Mm-hmm. And I was working in an office and I remember my coworker at the time being like, man, you know, nobody really likes it here, but wow, you really don't like it here. And I was <laughs> like, yeah, I know. I just can't. What job were you doing at the time? At the time I was selling car insurance to uh, people over 55 and you would just sit there and it would just, they would just call you all day as the commercials mm-hmm. played. And mostly we were running an ad where you got a free calculator if you called us. <laughs> okay. And so these old these older people would just they just wanted the calculator (laughs) and so i think i i got in trouble because i started answering the phone hello free calculators (laughs) Uh. i wonder whether this um conversation about kind of what's going on internally and what's about work and what's about your personal life. I don't know if any of that is what led you to reading The Inner Game of Tennis, um, but I think it addresses quite a lot of that stuff. The Inner Game of Tennis is like amazing. It was written in the 70s. And essentially, the premise of the book was this guy realized that tennis players were really hard on themselves and they're perfectionist. And the more they tried to do something correctly, the worse it was. And so what he taught them was, don't think about the tennis after you do, after you perform it. Mm-hmm. Once you get to a certain level, your subconscious knows how to swing the racket. And by you then using this other side of your brain, like the prefrontal cortex to be like, do it right. You're, at, you're just impeding your natural ability. So one thing I used to do a lot in standup after like seven or eight years doing it was think about it way too much after I got done with it and be like, oh, I should have done that better. I should have done this better. I should have done that. And then that book was just like, it was It was originally written just for tennis players in the 70s, but it became a phenomenon because it was so translatable to anything. All I would do was not think about it at all afterward to the best of my ability. I wouldn't, because I used to do all these rituals. I would write down all these notes afterward. I just wouldn't do any of that. And then yeah. what happened was, I just became better because you're essentially creating this weird loop of like shame. And yeah, because if you get done and you go, oh, you did that badly. Well, then when you go to do it again, all you're thinking is don't do it badly. Don't do it badly. And it's just this, I don't know. It's just this symptom of like anything. It's like, there's that phrase, like whatever you love, you'll destroy because you just love it so much. You want to get really good at it. Yeah. So so I, I think that, that's good for like the first five years. But then if you find yourself way too into anything, just pull back completely and mm-hmm. you will get a thousand times better. And that was, I mean, it was just a massive change in, uh, and I still implement that. This book, when you put it forward as one of your books, was an absolute blast from the past for me. I don't really read a lot of self-help books. And I definitely don't read anything ever about sports. Yeah. Um, but this was the book used. I studied in America. I studied in Indiana. And this was the book that we based our movement um, syllabus on. Oh, really? Um, wow. Yeah, our teacher used this as the, the core text for a lot of our work. It's so weird because I haven't, I couldn't remember the name of it. So after I came back from America, 
a couple of years later, I thought, that book had a pretty big impact on me. I'm going to try and buy it. Uh, couldn't remember the name of it. Uh, so I've been looking for a while. So when you said it, I immediately ordered it. <laughs> oh, like, right on. Cool. <laughs> you helped me here. No, but um, there is something confusing about this book, just because it has a tennis ball on the front, and it's called The Inner Game of Tennis, and it is based around tennis as the framework. I think many more people would have read it. I know, I know a lot of people have read it, but I think more people would have read it if they realize that it is not really about tennis whatsoever. Yeah. And now that like, and after you read that book, by the way, tennis books in general are fantastic for this, Mm -hmm. for, for these kind of things, because it's all psychology. Like Andre Agassi wrote an autobiography, which I got at a used bookstore and it is phenomenal. It is so good. And it's like, I bought it with the same thing as you like, well, I am not going to enjoy this. This is about tennis. And it's just like tennis players are the closest thing to comedians as far as absolute insanity neuroticism. Mm-hmm. And David Foster Wallace was a tennis player. And he's got that same like, if you read David Foster Wallace, it's like the dude, that's his whole stock and trade is like, I'm going to overthink one idea to the point of madness. Mm. And... um. Like there's another book I want to read about tennis called Winning Ugly. And Ooh. it's, yeah, and it's the same sort of principle. It's like, it's about perfectionism. And yeah. actually, I'm probably going to get it. I've, I've been meaning to get that for a while. But it, it's basically about, yeah, the, the title, it's in the title. It's like, it doesn't matter how you win. Mm-hmm. If, if you won, you did it. Because, you know, tennis players are like, oh, I got to do it perfect. And it's just like, let yourself be ugly. Let it be, let it be messy. It's like, you could translate that to your to your career and like especially I know I've struggled with that it's like well there's so many opportunities to put yourself out there today and I hesitate a lot because I'm like oh but for some reason when I put something out it's like it's being engraved into the criterion collection of my life and and I'm like oh I just can't have that out there and it's like well no that's that's just going to you're not going to get to the great thing unless you make loads and loads of shit yeah and you're just going to have to deal with that. And also, nobody remembers the shit. Like, if you look at some of your favorite artists, you know, you'll look at, like, a, a retrospective of their life. And there will be, like, 10 works that you've never heard of. Yeah. And then when you put yourself in the mindset, because the story will be like, and they released this book, and it didn't do well. And then they went, you know, then they wrote it. And it's like, when they put that book out, they thought that was going to be the book that made them. Yeah. And, it was and nobody weird. cared, you know? about the book you're writing the book that i'm writing is about when i was in high school Mm -hmm. and i think a theme in my entire life for whatever reason i don't know is i think this is a very symptomatic of an american in that we we like the idea of the american dream but we reject it at least i know i have Mm -hmm. we reject it as kind of a lie where it seems to be this carrot that they hang in front of you to get you to struggle, to be the middle class, to to sort of like hold the system up. And what I mean by that is like, you know, you work really hard and then you get it. I remember my dad telling me, son, and I was so young, he was like, you, you should contribute to society and blah, blah, blah. And I said, dad, but what if I just did enough so that I could get by and, you know, be able to have more time? <laughs> he, was like, hor- he was like horrified. He's like, he's got a little communist. But I just like that that idea of like, um, yeah, just this whole thing of like, yeah, your life has to suck for like 40 years 
And then you just lay down on a beach. Like, <sighs> fuck, fuck that. So American high school, to me, it's like the Matrix. High school was the red pill. I was one way before I went in, and I went through this machine and came out a totally different person. And originally, I just started, it's called 24 Stories of High School in Glory. And I just started writing these little stories about things I remembered in high school, um, almost like Catch-22, not from their perspectives, but my perspective on just different people. Mm-hmm. And and I think I don't know what a high school is like right now, but in the '90s, that four years you're in high school is a microcosm for the entire American dream, the United States. It's it's all there, man. You've got the one percent, you've got the forgotten ones, you've got the the teachers who are like one out of ten is trying to do a good job. The rest of them are, you know, actively oppressing anything sort of creative. Uh, I don't know. I know. It, I know that it's resonating with me, and it's coming from a pretty pure place. And I don't know how it would affect other people, but I uh, I like it so far. I'm looking forward to reading it. Well, we'll see. So before we um before we wrap up, I would like. I know that you feel quite strongly about bookstores and where you buy your books. I mean, obviously, we'd all like to be in a library. Yeah. Um, where have you been getting your books? During lockdown, I've had to do the Amazon thing, of course, but uh, not lockdown. London is great for books, but I live uh, near Notting Hill, and there's a great spot that is a used bookstore. Uh, and I forget, I had to look up the name because I just wander there. I've gone <laughs> there hundreds of times. I've never looked up. to. There's a used bookstore right next to a used comic book shop and they both have a vast selection Mm -hmm. and it's just like it's just a little slice of heaven yeah it's the comic hill book exchange and then notting hill comic exchange great and then there was also one in edinburgh that i would go to during the festival called tills Mm. and it's so awesome it's this guy it's run by this one guy and it's like i don't understand how he can have that vast of a collection he's one of those guys like he has like the entire pantheon of like pop culture in yeah. one shop and he knows about everything like you'll pick up a a dime store book from the 50s that no one's ever heard of and he'll tell you the whole biography on it oh and um yeah that's just a great one too and and it's it's just good to support places like that as well there's a few lovely ones there in Edinburgh actually what's the one on the on the opposite the pear tree is it the lighthouse books specializes in kind of like revolutionary queer literature yeah there's like you can walk around Edinburgh. there's deadhead comics i think it's called there's so many great bookshops i think there's one that yeah maybe it is lighthouse that yeah lighthouse is right next to dead uh deadhead comics which is yeah yeah, you just said lighthouse has all the revolutionary books and all that right yes 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 it's like this little anarcho Mm -hmm. anarchist socialist community i yeah i love that i love going in there and just like that's a great one to go in with no idea what you want and you'll mm-hmm. just get, uh, yeah, you'll walk out of there uh, with a Molotov cocktail in your hand. <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> round up this interview. And um, it's been so nice talking to you. Thank you, Lucy. I really enjoyed it. I hope I wasn't too uh, talkative. But I knew if you get me talking about this kind of thing, I'm not going to shut up. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful rest of sort of semi-lockdown now, aren't we? Yep. So keep reading, I guess. Thank you, Lucy. You too. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Comics Books. I hope you enjoyed it. In the show notes, you'll be able to find full listings of all the books we mentioned, as well as links to our featured independent bookshop. Have a great week, reading, laughing, and then reading some more.